God's plan for Israel. Father, we do pray that as we find ourselves in Zechariah, that you would just touch our hearts. And I do want to lift up anybody who's listening today, that perhaps that uh, they've been sick or uh, we know that COVID's been spreading. We're grateful that we're hearing numbers are starting to go down here in Colorado, but Lord, we just pray we get through this pandemic. You keep us safe and healthy, and Lord, uh, we want to just move forward in what you have for us. I pray you bring healing to those who have been sick, maybe not with COVID, but perhaps with colds and flus and other things that are going on. And Lord, we thank you that we can be here to just study your word once again and uh, and to see that um, this is written for us as well. So touch our hearts with your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we move into chapter 4, chapters 1 through 3 that we went through last week, uh, we saw the first four visions that Zechariah had. In this book, he has eight visions, and there are scholars that suggest that perhaps that he had all these visions in one night. I I know that uh, I think all of us can say that uh, there's some nights where we have dreams and it's just all these weird dreams that we can have and in different dreams we wake up and say, wow, I I feel like I didn't even hardly get any rest. But here's Zechariah, whether all these visions came in one night or not, uh, we saw the first four visions and now in chapters four through six, we're going to see the remaining four visions as we read in chapter 4, Now the angel who talked with me came back and awakened me as a man who awakened out of his sleep. So as we begin to look at this vision, this is going to be the vision of the lampstand and the olive trees. And it's very significant. It has significant uh, implications when it comes to end time prophecy as well. But we see here that the angel comes who's talking with Zechariah. And he awakens him uh, to prepare Zechariah for this vision. And, of course, we see throughout the scriptures that you and I were told to be awake. We're told to be awake spiritually. We are to be awake spiritually so we can be prepared for what the Lord has for us. And I think that's an important message for us, not only in our lives as we journey through life, uh, living for him and serving him, but also for what's coming. Because we know that the coming of the Lord is very, very near, and we need to be awake. Be awake, Jesus said. Be alert. Be watching. Be the wise servant that's looking for the master's return, because he comes at a time that we least expect. And that exhortation it's an imperative you know, command given to us that you are to be awake now. And here Zechariah is awakened, so he is presented with the vision in verse 2. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking at, there is, and there is a lampstand and a solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other on its left. So as he's prepared for the vision, because he's awakened, and I'll tell you this, as we are alert and awake in our spiritual life, then we are going to see more of what the Lord has for us. And now he's presented with this vision. He sees a golden menorah or lampstand. Now, remember that they had been building the temple, the, the time 
that this vision is here, that they're going to get back to the work. He is on the scene at the same time Haggai was on the scene. As we saw a few weeks ago, Haggai, only two chapters, but such an important message as Haggai comes on the scene, and they had stopped building the temple. They had stopped preparing uh, for what God had for them, uh, and they were just doing their own thing. So Haggai comes along and says, consider your ways. You know, the Lord says, consider your ways. And you're empty. You're not satisfied. You're not being blessed because you're just living for yourself. It's time to get back to the building of the temple. Well, Zechariah, he's on the scene at the same time here as we saw in the opening of this book. And they're going to get back to it. But here is this vision as this golden menorah is presented to him. Now, in the, in the tabernacle and in the temple, uh, we know that the tabernacle, particularly as you look at the book of Exodus, that there was the outer courtyard. And that's where they had the altar of, of, of um, where they did the sacrifices, the altar of sacrifice. They had the uh, bronze uh, brazen uh, you know, lever there that they would wash with the priests. And that's where they did the sacrifices. Then the tabernacle itself, you would go into the holy place, the first room, and there straight ahead was the altar of incense that the priest would burn incense representing the prayers of the people. On the left-hand side was that menorah. The right-hand side was the shewbread table with 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. But it also speaks of Jesus, the, the Old Testament. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, and in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which speak of me. And we know that there's only one way to the presence of God, as they would go into the tabernacle, and then behind the veil was where the tangible presence of God. Jesus said, I am the door. And as we know that uh, he is the bread of life. And then the seven-branched menorah was there. And the seven-branched menorah was the only source of light that was inside the holy place. There was no windows and in the tabernacle. And, and there was bowls on top of them, and they had uh, full of oil, and there was wicks in there. And that was one of the duties of the priest, is that he would fill up the bowls, keep the, the menorah burning. And here is this vision that he sees in you know, this menorah, and it is a little bit different here. Because out of the bowl, there were seven pipes going to each of the seven bowls. And there was two olive trees supplying the bowls with oil with two golden pipes. We will see that in verse 12 here. So one of the more tedious duties of the priest was to constantly care in the filling of the menorah with oil. The bowls needed to be filled. The wicks needed to be trimmed. But here, there would be a constant supply of oil. The oil would flow from the olive trees through the golden pipes into each of those, down to each of those seven bowls in the menorah. And I just wonder if Zechariah remembered that he is prophet and he is priest as well. If he's looking at this and he's thinking, hey, that's a good idea. That's going to make it a lot simpler. We don't have to manually be doing that all the time. But as he sees this menorah, verse 4, we continue, as now as he was prepared for the vision, he is presented the vision. Now he's perplexed by the vision, verse 4. So he answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. It's okay for us to not, 
understand and admit that. And to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't understand. And as we study the scriptures, as we continue to grow in the scriptures, the Lord is going to increase us in understanding. But even for me, when I have people that ask me questions or if I'm on the radio and they ask me questions, I don't know everything. But it doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't desire to give me understanding as I research those things. We can never exhaust the scriptures. And that's one of the things that I want to to just remind you of, because sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, well, I know the Bible, Pastor Jeff. I, I went to Sunday school. I read the Bible when I was in youth group or whatever. I used to go to church for this amount of years. I've been teaching the Bible for 30 years in ministry, and I have not exhausted the Bible. One of the things I realized that I'm constantly learning constantly asking for understanding and that's okay to do that because the Lord desires to give us clarity and understanding for us to grow in the scriptures and it's a wonderful thing to be able to do that so here he asked for understanding and the Lord desires to to give us understanding uh, as we ask for that as he shows us and then as we know that he was prepared for the vision, he was presented the vision, he's perplexed by the vision now verses 6 through 10 the purpose of the vision. Let's read it. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Remember, Zerubbabel is the civil leader. They come back as the decree from Cyrus came, as the 70 years of captivity was over, 536 B.C. You can go back and rebuild the temple. They come back with about 50,000 people, just under 50,000 people, which in totality was a small number because there were still a couple million that stayed behind. They were still in Babylon and Persia, uh, scattered. They were businessmen. They all of a sudden, as uh, before the captivity, before uh, the Assyrian captivity in 722 BC, the people worked the land, and that was very important, having their inheritance. Uh, and there was a lot of agriculture. Now that they were taken out and taken into captivity, particularly by Babylon, that they went back and they ended up being shopkeepers and businessmen, and they were successful. So they were more uh, comfortable just staying there. Why go back to Jerusalem that lays in rubble? Uh, everything's a mess. It's going to be difficult. There's the enemies that are there that are always threatening. It's going to be hard and difficult, and we have to rebuild everything. We're comfortable here. So only a small number came back, and Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, as we saw him in the vision in chapter 3. Remember, he's standing before the Lord. He's standing before the Lord in those, those, those garments that were filthy, and the Lord said, take those filthy garments off and give them new robes. Of course, it speaks about how we need to be robed and we need to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We can't stand before the Lord in our own righteousness, saying, here, look at my beautiful robes. Look at my righteousness. Our righteousness are as filthy rags before the Lord, is what Isaiah declares. But Joshua is the high priest. Zerubbabel is the civil leader. So they lay the foundation of the temple. They take two years to do that. They built the altar so they could do sacrifices. Uh, and they would lay the foundation of the temple. Then it stopped because of reasons that we talked about in Haggai. And the decree would come back that they could rebuild the temple. Go ahead. We, we know that Cyrus gave that decree. And so the people stopped. And they stopped for... Uh, you know, a good number of years, about 14 years that the work stopped. And that's where Haggai says, listen, you're just only interested in building your own home. It's time to, to get back to doing the work of the Lord. 
So I'm sure that as this message comes to Zerubbabel, the civil leader, and to Joshua, that they are probably frustrated. They're probably wondering, have I failed the people? Lord, nothing's happening. Uh, you know, the people have turned inwardly. Joshua certainly must feel frustrated as well. And so as the work is stopping, this very important message is given to them that is important for us today. So you go and tell Zerubbabel, the Lord had a word for him. And as us continue looking at this, then in verse 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. In verse 8, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord that scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. We've seen that in verse 10, that the eyes of the Lord scan go throughout the whole earth. He sees you. He knows what's going on. And that's an important message. Because sometimes when we feel like that nothing is going on, Lord, I feel like I'm in this place. Nothing is taking place. I'm in a place of waiting. In a place of frustration, we wonder, Lord, do you even see me? And always remember that the Lord, his eyes go to and fro across the whole earth, even as King Asa was told, to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him. You just stay loyal towards the Lord. He sees you, and he's going to show himself strong on your behalf as you trust in him and, and know that he's still working. He's still traveling with us. He, he still, as this very important message is given to Zerubbabel, this is a message for us as well. And as we see that Zerubbabel, number one, that the temple is going to be completed, verses 8 and 9. Uh, the vision given uh, just about four or five years before the completion of the temple. And during that time that the work had stopped, Zerubbabel was in a way, uh, place of waiting. And here he is told, the hands that began are going to be the hands that finish it. Zerubbabel, know that. that. Know that the hands that have laid the foundation in this temple are also going to be the hands that finish it. And that must have been so encouraging to Zerubbabel. And the Lord comes along, David would say before this time, that the Lord will perfect that which concerns us. And, of course, we know the verse. I've mentioned it a few times in the last few teachings that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that Paul writes that being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work will bring it to completion, especially in the day of Christ Jesus. And that brings me confidence. That brings me trust and rest in him. I don't have to strive. I don't have to try to figure out what's going on. I don't have to try to make my own plans. I can know this. That, Lord, as I follow you and as I am led by you, that you are going to complete that work that you are doing in my life. And the hands that that have started Zerubbabel are going to be hands that finish it, first of all. Second of all, don't despise the day of small things. That's in verse 10. And sometimes we think that when small things are happening, uh, that the Lord isn't working. And we need to remember that don't despise the day of small things. I think about when we started the church here, Calvary Chapel, how small we were. We started in the house. 
And, and then we went to a little facility downtown, and then we came to this facility with only about 50, 60 people 20 years ago or 21 years ago. And we, you know, it was a small work. And for year after year after year, it, it seemed like that, uh, you know, not a whole lot was happening. We were being faithful to the Lord, teaching the word of the Lord. He was still working. But one of the things that the Lord has taught me is don't despise the day of small things. And as you are where God wants you to be, it's not a small thing. That God is working for his purposes and his plans. And don't despise the day of small things. We think, well, things aren't growing. We measure success by how the world measures success. How many people are coming? How big your building is? How many programs you have? How popular you are? How many people you have on staff? We can't measure it by that. Don't despise the day of small things. Zerubbabel, I am still working. And I'm going to be the one that's going to help you complete that work. I'm using you. So don't despise the day of small things. And perhaps you have a dream or a project or a vision, something that, that you have been doing. And you started out saying, all right. And we laid the foundation. And then discouragement and difficulty comes. And you think nothing is really happening. It's small days. It's small things. Don't despise it. Let God do what he wants to do. And it's like a mountain before me uh, that as here's Zerubbabel, that he's told Zerubbabel that uh, as, you know, you have the foundation of the temple, you're going to finish the, the temple. And how great, verse 7, O mountain. He must have thought this project is a mountain. The difficulties are a mountain. But you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstones with shout of grace, grace to it. It is by God's grace. And the mountains that are before you, he will make a plain to get his purposes accomplished and his will done through you. And it is him that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasures. Both to will and to do. He works that in you. And he will do that completed work in you. And then number three, that mountain will be a plain, as I mentioned. I just, as I've talked about it, by God's grace. So number one, that you go tell Zerubbabel that the temple is going to be completed. Second of all, don't despise the day of small things. Thirdly, the mountain will become a plain. And uh, it's all by his grace. And then fourthly, it won't be finished by your might or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And I need to always remember that. I think that that's a verse that um, is something I'm reminded of. It's been a verse all throughout my ministry. It isn't by your might and your power, but it by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And when we understand that and make it our own and just trust the Lord, it's by your Holy Spirit. It isn't by me striving and straining. And oftentimes in ministry, what can happen is churches and pastors that we've got to, you know, do a lot of... You can do ministry in your own might and in your own flesh and in your own desires and striving and stuff, but then you've got to maintain it. And I'd rather just say, Lord, whatever you want to do by your Spirit, because you will maintain that work and you will bless that work. You see, it's more than, Lord, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do these things and we're going to... Uh, have these projections and we're going to have these goals and we want you to get behind us and bless it. No, it's Lord, what do you want to do? As, as we seek you and as we see the model of ministry given to us, which I believe we do see, that they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the early church. That is the teaching of the word of God. 
in prayer, in fellowship, in breaking the bread, as we do those things, as we are seeking you, that, Lord, we want to get behind what you are doing. There's a big difference in that because that's a work of the Spirit. It's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Whatever the Lord is doing in your life, that he's going to do it by his Holy Spirit working through you, empowering you, guiding you, and strengthening you. So oil here in the, is a type in the scripture of the Holy Spirit to empower you to, to just continue the work that he wants to do through you. And that's important in our lives, and it's important for us as a church to understand that. And now in verses 11 through 14, as we finish the chapter, the, the pondering of the, the vision. So there's preparation, there's the presentation, there's the, the, uh, the perplexed by the vision, now the purpose of the vision, and now the pondering of the vision. And I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at the left? And I further answered and said to him, what are these two olive branches that drip into receptacles of the two golden pipes, of the two golden pipes that were feeding um, those uh, those." Uh, you know, bowls on each of the seven bowls. And we know, verse 13, he answered and said to me, do you not, not know that who these, what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. So he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. So interesting, isn't it? And the two witnesses here, historically, there's Zerubbabel and Joshua, the spirit working through them, the, the, the project's going to be completed. But prophetically, it speaks of the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11, verse 4, as many of you know. And let me read it to you. In the middle of the tribulation period, as John is told to measure the temple, in verse 3, as we read, that I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So prophetically speaks of the two witnesses. We've talked about that. If you're wondering who prophetically is the two witnesses, go back to that study of Revelation chapter 11, verse 4. But here, uh, historically, it's Zerubbabel and Joshua. Let's move into chapter 5 as we see another vision, the uh, vision of the flying scroll in chapter 5. We read, Then I turned and raised my eyes and saw there was a flying scroll. You know, we are told in Scripture, keep your eyes on the things above, not on the things of this world. In other words, when Paul writes that to the church of Colossae, he's saying, make sure you keep your eyes on heaven. And I was thinking of that as I raised my eyes. We need to raise our eyes. Even as, remember that it was Moses when the children of Israel came to the, the Red Sea and two mountain ranges on both sides. The Egyptians are about ready to come and, and run over them and conquer them and kill them. And they're stuck. And Moses said, that lift up your eyes. They, they lifted their eyes. They saw the Egyptians and they cried out. And the Lord said, no, see the salvation of the Lord. They needed to lift their eyes a little bit higher. And sometimes we lift our eyes and we see the chariots of the world about ready to run us over and the difficulties and the challenges. But we want to lift our eyes higher. See the salvation of the Lord. 
that he's working for us and his promises are still true for us. Keep your eyes on the things above, on eternity is what we're told to do. And so there's a flying scroll and he said to me in verse 2, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. And then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side. And I send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief, and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stone. So the prophet sees this flying scroll uh, through the air. It's... um, you know, the dimensions are given. It's not rolled up. It seems to be spread out. And the dimensions are about 30 feet by 15 feet, which, by the way, I believe is the same dimensions as the holy place of the tabernacle. And some scholars say that this scroll contains the Ten Commandments. The Eighth Commandment against stealing, the Third Commandment against swearing falsely. But verse 4, as we read this, speaking of a rapid judgment, a curse of those who violate the law. And this may represent those who violate the whole of God's law. But one of the things that really caught my attention here is it shall enter, verse 4, the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely. It shall remain in the midst of his house. Listen, if you have sin, it's going to come into your house. Mom and dads, you know, whoever you might be, if there is sin... You're going to bring it into your house. You might be thinking, well, I'm doing ungodly business deals or, you know, you're out doing things that you shouldn't be doing and you're ignoring the ways of the Lord. You're totally uh, in the world, whatever it might be. You're going to bring it into your house. And you're going to bring it day after day and it's going to bring repercussions and consequences eventually. That are, It's just going to bring a curse. It's just going to bring a curse eventually. It's going to catch up with you because whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. God said, you know, I will not be mocked. Don't be deceived. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. If you sow to the spirit, the spirit, you're going to reap to everlasting life. If you sow to the flesh of the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. It will come into your house. Remember that. Remember that. So here is this vision is given that this judgment of those who are dealing uh, in an ungodly way, uh, swearing falsely. And then we see the vision of the woman uh, in a basket, verses 5 through 8. Let's read. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket that is going forth. He also said, This is the resemblance throughout the earth. And here is the lead disc that is lifted up. And this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the the lead cover over its mouth. As we read this, here is the angel directs Zechariah to another flight, to a basket or an ephah in the Hebrew, which was a large barrel or basket used for common household measure. And here as we see this, this, this basket that is there, this woman, as we read is there and I raised my eyes and looked verse 9 there was two women coming from the winds in their wings for they had wings like the wings of a stork and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven so I said to the angel who talked with me 
Where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, To build a house for it in the land of Shinar, that is Babylon. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. Interesting vision here. So the woman, it reminds me so much of Revelation chapter 17, the, the woman riding the beast. And the woman was a false church that is going to be on the scene in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Here, this woman in a basket represents the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Um, and is it dealing with religious Babylon? Is it dealing with commercial Babylon? The basket there represents commercial. Uh, the, their wickedness, this woman was thrust down into the basket and a, a lid was placed over it and two women carried it away. Some have suggested that Shinar here mentioned in verse 11, uh, what does it mean? It could mean that perhaps could it mean some say that Babylon's going to be rebuilt where it was. Um, some use this as a, a verse, and that's the debate. Is commercial Babylon going to be rebuilt in Babylon uh, where Babylon used to be? Some believe that that's what the prophecies seem to indicate. Some believe, no, it's just symbolic of, of the, the world system. But it's interesting. You can take a look at it. Uh, on your own, but we do know that Babylon represents the world and, and wickedness, and that's what's going to be, um, you know, getting rid of in the tribulation that's going to come to an end. In other words, God will destroy all that which is false, religious Babylon, commercial Babylon that corrupted the whole earth, chapter 18. But for us here, it, it, the Lord is saying, get wickedness out of our lives, get it out, take it away. You know, any kind of wickedness that we have going on that we need to make sure that, that we um, have the Lord take it away. And we are to pursue holiness and we are to pursue righteousness as Christians. Do what is right before the Lord. And then chapter 6, then I turn and raise my eyes as we see this eighth and final vision that Zacharias saw. And look and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains and the mountains were mountains of bronze. As we see this, the four chariots coming between the two bronze mountains. Uh, scholars suggest that this is the Mount of Olives, the Mount Zion, which puts the chariots in the Kidron Valley. And we do know that bronze, it speaks of what? It speaks of, in the Old Testament, a metal that speaks of judgment. So as we see this, and remember that chapter 1, there was horses among the myrtle trees. And so we see some images here with this first chariot were red horses in verse 2 and the second chariot black horses with the third chariot white horses and with the fourth chariot dapple horses strong steeds as we read that and uh, reading it uh, we see that these uh, chariots drawn by the different horses the red horse and many believe that speaks of war and bloodshed the second chariot drawn by black horses, which we see speaks of famine and death. The third chariot drawn by white horses, which speaks of triumph and victory. And then the fourth chariot, dappled horses, speaks of plagues and it speaks of pestilence. And we see the same familiar images uh, in Revelation chapter 6 in the, the first four seals, the four riders on the horse. Now, there's a tendency to relate these four chariots to the four horsemen of the apocalypse of Revelation chapter 6. Familiar images, uh, some, some similarities, but I don't believe that they're exactly the same things. So the white horse, 
of course, in Revelation chapter 6, the first seal is the Antichrist that comes on a white horse, triumph, conquering unto conquer, and then the red horse that speaks of war, and then uh, there is uh, the other horses that are mentioned then as well. And, and you can look at that. And so you see similar visions and imagery and what it represents in all of this. So here are these these four horses and let's continue looking at the vision and then i answered and said to the angel who talked with me what are these my lord he had a lot of questions zechariah did and the angel answered and said to me these are the four spirits of heaven who go out to their station before the lord of all the earth the one of the black horses is going to the north country the white are going after them and the dapple are going towards the south country and the strong steeds went out, eager to go, that they may walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, go walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And verse 8 tells us, he called to me, spoke to me, saying, see these who go towards the north country have given rest in my spirit in the north country. So interesting here is these four angelic beings Four spirits of heaven bring forth judgment. The black horse of the north followed by the white horse uh, and the dappled to the south. The north may be perhaps speaking of Magog or Babylon. The strong steeds as they go throughout the whole earth as God's judgment against the Gentile nations is brought forth. And notice in verse 8 here it says that he is satisfied. He is satisfied. In other words, his purposes uh, are accomplished. And my spirit in the north country, as we see here, he spoke to me saying, see, those who go towards the north country have rest in my spirit as we see this. And we do know that the Lord is going to bring the Gentile nations to an end. That's part of commercial Babylon being destroyed in Revelation chapter 18. We will see the vision of the Gentile nations that will come on the scene in Daniel chapter 2, from the time of Daniel to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the rock that hit that image that represents the Gentile nations or man's empires is going to crumble and come to dust and uh, be blown away by the wind and then the rock will grow, which is representative of the rock Jesus Christ. And then as we read in verse 9, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, they received a gift from the captives from uh, Heldiah, Tob, uh, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have come from the Bab Babylon, and go to the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. So as we read this here, let's read verse 11. Take silver and gold and make an elaborate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoiakim, the high priest. So three unknown captives from Babylon returned to Jerusalem, and to, they were to make a crown from the silver and gold that they had brought back from Babylon. We don't know anything of these three individuals that are mentioned here. Hildiah, his name means robust. Tobijah, his name means God's goodness. And Jediah, his name means God knows. And what they were to do is make this crown and set it on the head of Joshua the high priest, which was not the norm to crown the high priest. Uh, but there's more going on here. Joshua, his name means, of course, Yahshua's salvation, symbolic of Jesus, who is our high priest. Now, keep in mind, in the Old Testament, you could have priest and prophet. That's what we see here with Zechariah and with Haggai. You could have um, king and prophet. David was a prophet. I've been mentioning him a lot 
in Sunday mornings in the fulfillment of Jesus' crucifixion, Psalm 22, as he is prophesying about Jesus' crucifixion. Absolutely amazing. He prophesies in Psalm 16, for example, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So David was king and he was prophet, but there was not king and priest. The king couldn't be the priest. The priest wasn't the king. And it was Uzziah, you recall, that he went into the temple, the king of Judah, who's a good king, but for some reason he became very prideful. He decided to go into the temple and burn incense, and the priests came in, 80 of them, and they said, what are you doing? You can't do that. You're the king. This is the responsibility of the priest. And Uzziah said, bug off, and then he got struck with leprosy and ended up dying, Uzziah. The only one that is king and priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that with Melchizedek as a, as, as a picture of Jesus, that he was king and he was priest as well. But Jesus Christ, he is king and he is priest. So here is this crown that is to be put on Joshua, which would be unusual. The, again, the, the priests didn't wear crowns. They wore a mitre is what they did. And as we continue in verse 12, Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, that of course is a title of Messiah, from his place he shall branch out. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. He shall be a priest in his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So here we saw the branch in chapter 3, verse 8, which as I mentioned, the title of Messiah. We also see in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. So it's obviously speaking of Jesus. And the Jews understand this to be the Messiah who will help them rebuild the temple. Now, it's interesting that today, that when you go to Israel, they have what's called the Temple Institute. Maybe some of you who are watching, that you've been to the Temple Institute and are trips to Israel. And what they are doing is getting all the furnishings that are being made for the temple, all the preparations, everything at the Temple Institute. You can go there and you can see that. And all they're waiting for is a physical building, the okay to build the temple. Now, we do know in the tribulation period that there's going to be a temple that's going to be rebuilt. But here's the thing. From the Jewish mind and Jewish belief, there's sects of, of Orthodox uh, Judaism, that they believe from this verse that the Lord will come back and he's going to build the temple. So they don't give much thought to the Temple Institute. You guys, you know, that want to go and lay the capstone or the, you know, cornerstone of the temple and they have this, you know, parade going through Jerusalem and all of this. There's a lot of them that say, no, the Lord's going to build the temple. When I read this, as it says that the Lord is going to, to bear, build the temple, verse 13, he shall bear the glory I believe is speaking of the millennium temple. Remember we went over that in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. That as we know the Lord will come back. There's a period we will go over it in Daniel chapter 12 of 75 days. It's during that time I believe that the tribulation temple will be destroyed. Uh, and it will be the judgment of the nations. He'll restore the nation of Israel. And he'll build the millennial temple which is a magnificent building. And he will be there in that temple, and, and the temple, the glory of the Lord will fill that temple, as we saw in Ezekiel. And we know that the glory of the Lord and the righteousness of the Lord will fill all the earth when the Lord comes back to establish his kingdom. So I believe he's speaking about the millennial temple. And then as we 
finish here uh, tonight, that the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial for the temple of the Lord, for Helam, Tobijah, uh, Jedidiah, and Hen, the son of Sephaniah, and even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So this is to remind us when, you know, that when these things come to pass, we will know that, that Zechariah was truly a prophet of God. But here's the thing. God will finish his work. He's going to finish his work with you. He's going to finish his work with me. And sometimes we can think, and one, one of the truths that the Lord's really pressed upon my heart is even over the last couple of years when we see that perhaps that uh, there's the decrees that are given that we can't meet, uh, persecution may increase, uh, a pandemic that keeps us from, uh, you know, uh, meeting together, uh, we maneuver through these things, the economy, sickness, whatever it is. But whatever is going on, listen, the gospel is going to move forward. The gospel is going to move forward. Whether there's persecution, whether there's famine, whether there's difficulties, trials, whatever it may happen, that the gospel is going to move forward. And God's plan is going to move forward. So we can trust in that and look to that. And what he wants to do in your life. Because he is going to complete that work that he's begun in you. He will perfect that which concerns you. And that brings me great peace and rest. And it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So, Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for these chapters. I pray that you would just continue to bless our week. Look forward to meeting on, on Sunday, but that we would rest, that you're in control, and that the things that we read about... Um, are going to come to pass. The Lord's going to come and fill the earth with his righteousness and his glory when he establishes his kingdom. And man's kingdom is going to be judged. But Lord, I pray that we would not bring sin, carnality into our house. Lord, I pray that we would be ones that we would look to you, to trust you in what you're doing in our lives. And not to despise the day of small things. Maybe it's raising our kids and providing for our family and taking care of elderly parents. Maybe it's a ministry that we think that isn't important or significant. It is in your eyes, Lord. And Lord, to bring a cup of water to a child, you said that there's a reward for that. As we pray for others, as we care for others and helping out in very practical ways, nothing is small in your sight as we do it in the name of the Lord and in love of others. So, Lord, thank you that we can get a proper perspective and set our eyes on the things above. Help us each and every day to look to you, to strengthen us and guide us and provide for us. I pray you bless everyone here. And, Lord, looking forward to meeting on Sunday once again as we gather as a church. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the week. Hope to see you on Sunday.